If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. By thy long grey beard and glittering eye, now wherefore stopst thou me? The bridegroom's doors are opened wide, and I am next of kin. The guests are met, the feast is set, mayst hear the merry din. He holds him with his skinny hand. There was a ship, we don't have time for this, cries Stowey to two mates. The one who gasps and seconds that no dice, and the one who stays, who didn't have time either, but stayed dwindled as they left him on the footpath with the ragged, clutching sole. Catch us up, eh? Ned yells in earshot. Neither figure turned, so the two pass on delighted to a garden. Under the threaded arch they move in bliss, Bill Porlock and Ned Stowey, to the feasts set out so early in the noonday sun with all of you, however should time dare to pass. Oh, over the lawns they stroll to everything they wished. They don't say so, but they think they'll find love here today, does Bill, does Ned, and soon they do say so. It struck me, writing this book, that uh, at some some point I actually say that it's it's striking how many people who want to learn about poetry go to prose to hear about it. Um, and the, in terms of the way I, what I write and so on, what's really come out of this for me, except for the unusual sensation of writing a book there seems to be demand for, um, is, is that it's given me an awful lot of confidence in writing prose. <laughs> so I might do that instead. Who knows? Uh, but um, So I wanted to really start this with some of the... The last of the seven chapters is all in verse, um, sort of... It's kind of you have to have read the other six to really get the in jokes, but it's it's just like a sort of holiday for the other six chapters. They just have fun at the end, um, and it's it's all set at a wedding. And I'm there, and I make him an embarrassing pass at Emily Dickinson. All sorts of things happen. Um, it's a little carnival at the end there. Um, it's the wedding that the wedding guest was on his way to when he was detained by the ancient mariner. Um, that his friends who were in the last poem just gone on to. So this is, um, uh, I I don't really want to inflict a self-portrait on you because that's horrible, and I've lasted this long without doing that. But I just passed kind of a landmark birthday last week, and uh, it feels like time. So this is a very short, I guess it's a self-portrait, sort of. And then there's something after that, and then I'll read a bit from the book. I mean, from the the prose bits, the bits that are true. (laughs) 
<laughs> so this is like quite late in the wedding. They watch their old professor, but he's not old. But he sits alone, and nobody thinks he's young. From the back, he looks like there's nothing he doesn't know. Then he turns and beams at you like Santa's bean. His empty book that looks like it cost the earth cost nothing. It was a parting gift from someone. And it isn't empty now. He could have left the party to scribble that which he's now writing. But he sat at the edge of the great isosceles glow that spilled from a roaring bar at that brilliant dew to be seen as he was, neither old nor young, neither here nor gone, neither with who he's with now, nor alone as he is now, writing down how it was that time there never was, when his students found this poem called The Bylaws. Never have met me, know me well, tell all the world there was little to tell, say I was heavenly, say I was hell, harry me over the blasted moors, but come my way, go yours. Never have touched me, take me apart, trundle me through my town in a cart, figure me out with the aid of a chart, finally add to the feeble applause, and come my way, go yours. Never have read me, look at me now, get why I'm doing it, don't get how, other way round, have a rest, have a row, have skirmishes with me, have wars, oh come my way, go yours. Never have left me, never come back. Mourn me in miniskirts, date me in black. Undress as I dress when I unpack, pack. Yet pause for eternity on all fours to come my way, go yours. Never have met me, never do. Never be mine, never even be you. Approach from a point it's impossible to at a time you don't have. And by these bylaws, come my way, go yours. I didn't particularly have a plan for this book when I started writing it. It was a commission from the people who published my plays. And I, I thought I'd been, you know, writing kind of 30 years, teaching 20 years, and I thought this is a long enough time that I could set down everything I've sort of figured out. You know, it only comes to that much. <laughs> Come on, you know. Um, but I thought I could distill a little bit, um, do all that. Uh, then, as I started doing that, I, um, I, I was thinking of, um, I was trying to, I was looking at all the romantics and the beginnings of romantic poems, and, and I wanted to make a point about how different they all were and, and what entirely different coherent worlds they represented, although they were all kind of boxed together as romantics. So I, I, I started imagining this sort of celestial cocktail party where they were all attempting to chat up this one woman. Um, this girl, and um, and then uh, that sort of then I th- I suppose I, I sort of thought what well what happened to that girl when she went home, having encountered all these people, uh, and then she tries to write she's quite young she tries to write a very derivative poem and I wanted to sort of talk about what it's like to be a, a very young poet and, and and be influenced and why that can be a good thing and so on, so I I got to thinking about um, how that would affect her and, and I said well it was a dream she had you know. Um, and then that led me to think, well, well let's, let's do the creative writing course. Let's, sh- let's uh, actually fictionalize some students and just have some fun doing that. So, so in a way, it's, it's, it's um, vaguely autobiographical in that it, things remind me of things that happened. 
but it's really it's really just um actually entertainment in a way because I thought this isn't this is my kind of book this is a book that's really about what it's like to sort of pass one's life doing this and be part of that world and I thought being a young student or having taught young students was was all part of it um and I thought, while thinking that this was quite a fun idea, and give it, which completely gave me the momentum to write it, uh, I also thought, what amazing self-indulgence is this? And then someone pointed out that that's what Stanislavski's books on acting are like. And <laughs> I thought, okay, all right, fine. Basically, he, in, he invents people who benefit from his advice. So uh, <laughs> anyway, this I, I don't feel I don't feel I want to just read to you things I think because in a way, this book was all about not doing that. Um, so I'm just going to read you a passage that, that kind of exemplifies the kind of book it is, and that some of it's about what I think about poetry and so on, but some of it's just this, um, this story, the story of these young students. Um, so we'll just plunge in, I think. I say the Riddler comes out of the mist. There are poems of mist and poems of smoke. By mist, I mean something natural that thins or parts or deepens further, something through which a shifting truth is glimpsed with joy, understanding, or spotted with fear. Mist, breathable, water going by in a cloak. By smoke, I mean man-made smoke, complex molecules conjured for reasons obscure, yet emanating from a single, explicable source, clever to make, not clever to breathe. When you've blown it all away, you're looking at a shell. By the time you get what it was, you can't use it anymore. Roam the wide savannas of the Tate Modern. Breathe what's mist. Smell what's smoke. To conclude on the blackness and the whiteness, anyone who's ever studied with me knows that I just bang on about blackness and whiteness the whole time, like print and nothing. To conclude on the blackness and the whiteness, we have to eavesdrop on one of my writing classes. That's where Isabella goes the next morning, having woken from a dream of meeting Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron and Keats at a drinks party overlooking the Thames. The river had a slope, she tells Orlando when she meets him on the way. Orlando's parents joked with their dinner party friends in the 80s about how, with a name like that, what a lover he would be some day. Well, yes, he is. Ollie's in love. He's besotted with Bella, but he doesn't know what to do with it. Bella says, funny, why wasn't Shelley in my dream? And Ollie quickens his step and says, uh... Maybe your subconscious dream creator didn't have, you know, a copy of Shelley with her last night when she was like, you know, created your dream. But he's gone on too long. By now, Bella's texting someone something and they walk on in silence. Outside the creative writing department, they meet Mimi slouching on the stone steps in the sunshine, lighting a roll up, smoke pulling out of her black lips. And here comes Wayne, miming smoking to make a point he's making about smoking. They are all assembled. Everyone's cardboard coffee cup says the same word. They're just waiting for me. The professor in Cambridge, I believe, bridled at the term creative writing when he first heard it and retorted that he would expect a creative writer to come up with something like a new colour. You have to love that high threshold. As Bella, Ollie, Mimi and Wayne follow me up the winding stairs to room 777 for their writing workshop, each looks quietly determined to make your regular blue, green, yellow and red seem stale compromises of the clueless past. In the interests of varsity balance, and also an apocryphal story I like to believe, 
A professor in Oxford, strolling across the quad with another of his kind one day, was distinctly overheard to say the words, and ninthly... <laughs> so, ninthly, I ask for first lines from everyone. It's a very simple exercise. It always leads somewhere. In this case, as I'm making this up, I'll cut cards for which student came up with the best one. Wayne did. For Wayne, the whiteness is a playground and the blackness mischief. He calls himself a miscreant. He wants to miscreate, to mischieve. He composes on an iPhone and always goes with the auto-suggest. This is based on a guy I knew. (laughs) This is the line he's offered the class. This is the end of the poem. Thanks, Wayne. My exercise is that the other three now have to pretend they wrote that and grow a second line organically from it. It has to sound like the same poet, the same world, the same view, tonally, emotionally, formally, maybe non-formally, but it has to sound like the same poet. The idea is that you divest yourselves of all your own prejudgments and preferences, inclinations. You pretend it was you. So, is the poet indoors? Is this happening in the afternoon? Is there sun or rain? Is the poet looking at us? Those questions usually pay off, not so much with Wayne's line, perhaps, but it's not meant to travel. Anyway, I'm just trying to get them going. This is the end of the poem. Orlando turns and says, thanks a bunch, mate, that's impossible. Isabella gazes at it doubtfully. Mimi makes that sighing noise that means Wayne is pissing away her time on earth. But they have to take it on. They have to take on its tone, its style, its pitch, and write a second line. Before Mimi can say, well, my next line is blank, I say, the next line isn't blank, Mimi. I leave them alone for a while and look out of a sunny window over the rooftops, then away at some buildings in the distance, thinking of long ago. The poetic encounter is a meeting in life. Let it be like that. Let it be that. Whether or not I achieve that myself, only time will tell, and it won't tell me. But what I teach, all I teach is how to aim there. This is the end of the poem. The whiteness in room 777 bristles with thought. For Wayne, the whiteness that follows the line he wrote himself is the speechless acclamation of all outsider artists. The world can see what he's done there. What now? But as Dylan sang, to live outside the law, you must be honest. Wayne is honest. It all has significance. He will play the game. The whiteness becomes invitation, challenge, dare. His paper looks like this now. This is the end of the poem. This is the start of the poem. In real life, when students have finished their assignments, I ask them to sit back with exaggerated smugness so I know who's still working on it. They smile politely, but I'm genuinely asking them to do that. It's helpful. Only I don't need to ask Wayne. He does that anyway. Ollie notices Wayne has done that. He says, it's all right for you. You wrote the first line. Wayne murmurs at his coffee cup. Not now, I didn't. You did. And Ollie kind of thinks that's bollocks, but grins. He got me. Touche. That's why I came to uni. For Orlando, the whiteness is time without her. Bella, Isabella. It wasn't always and it won't be always, but it is this morning. The whiteness is what hasn't been. The blackness is what might be. The whiteness is she loves me. The blackness is not yet. The silence is Juliet's window up there. The noise is Romeo shinning up a drainpipe. And now Wayne's made that impossible with his post-this, post-that, pointless foolery. This is the end of the poem. Where could it possibly go from here? Where could poetry go? But as Orlando stares down the barrel of defeat at the hands of the postmodern, by and by he starts to be aware of darker tones he can use. 
Now the whiteness is a cold world without poetry or love. Any blackness he has left in him is suddenly heroic, the cry of a grail knight through the fog. He dips nobly to the task, lances Wayne's full stop so it bleeds into a comma and the fight is on. This is the end of the poem. The loss of hope, the last failing of the crimson light in the faraway west. Ollie's not great on the line break, we're working on that. When he sits back, remembering to exaggerate the smugness because he loves to do the daft things I ask of the class, he really does feel pretty good. Wayne tried to close down the beauty in the world, but Orlando has foiled him from the heart of the tradition. Deeper magic from before the dawn of time, he remembers from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and he jots that in the margin. Isabella is sitting next to him and has forgotten he is in the world. I only mentioned that in case he was wondering. For Bella, the whiteness is luminous, lunar, something she knows at night. The blackness is a secret, a secret from her. She has no feelings whatever about Wayne's line. Sitting here isn't being a poet. This is just a class about poetry. It's not pointless. This professor knows people. He knows poets who've been on TV. He has a Wikipedia page his daughter messes with. That's cute. In her notebooks in her room, Isabella has 900 poems she hates. But last night she dreamed she was drunk among the true poets, and all will be well. This is the end of the poem. Death said from his carriage door. Bella's favourite poet is... Oh, come on. <laughs> she remembers Ollie is in the world, and she smiles at him when he smiles at her because she has good manners and she's written her line. Mimi is drawing a really complicated maze no one can leave. She's pretending to be the girl in Inception. She finished this exercise in about eight seconds. This is the end of the poem, said the idiot at the start. <laughs> For her, the whiteness was expectation, and the blackness is what you can fucking do with your expectation. I say, how are we doing, guys? <laughs> Here's how I think they're doing. Wayne is right. He's always figuring out how far things can be taken. Always in the same direction, mind. But still, Ollie's right. He feels deeply that a poem should have beauty, but so far he can only find that in the past. His whiteness needs to be stronger, blow harder in his face at the line end. That will strengthen the black, curtail his time, make it worth more. He can dig for his beauties there. And anyway, Bella smiled at him. You think I know these people because I've taught them, but I know them because I've been them. One morning long ago in Boston town, Professor Walcott and I played melodies with my right hand, Sorry, one morning long ago in Boston town, Professor Walcott said, I played melodies with my right hand, but my left hand just lay there. Another time in his little office on a Tuesday morning in November sunshine, he surveyed a 40-line lyric I'd written about me. He'd made us memorize Dylan Thomas's short poem, 24 years remind the tears of my eyes. And well, I'd had a birthday just that week, my 25th, so I'd done the obvious but gone on way longer. He frowned, ringed a little phrase with his pencil, and then quoted with evident scorn, Caving into sleep. Caving into sleep. Caving into sleep. Knowing what was coming, I said, Yes, I suppose that's pretty rubbish now I look. He slid the poem back to me. It's terrific, the rest is shit. <laughs> Twenty-four years remind the tears of my eyes. Bury the dead for fear that they walk to the grave in labor. In the groin of the natural doorway, I crouched like a tailor, sewing a shroud for a journey by the light of the meat-eating sun. Dressed to die, the sensual strut begun.
with my red veins full of money, in the final direction of the elementary town. I advance for as long as forever is. The students are looking at their professor, looking out of the window. Yes, sorry, Bella is right too. She's right to love Emily Dickinson so much she can't help hanging round her room. Everyone should find one like that. When she gets clear of it, she'll know a ton about form, whether or not she knows anything Emily knew. And Mimi is probably a poet. She may not really be bothered, but having written, said the idiot at the start, and sat back, doodling in her book, while recharging her Kindle, yawning and stretching in such a way as to make a cat seem diligent, she then suddenly shot forward like it mattered, and changed it to, went the idiot at the start, because the line wasn't good enough, and she really couldn't bear it. I'm going to read you some new poems, because, because there's a lot of you, and because I've written some prose. This is about. This is called the net. I, well, I have I have actually chosen poems that are sort of, kind of slightly exemplify things in there in terms of. This is an unrhymed sonnet. It booted up, and everyone you guessed would be there was on bunks, on Babel towers of bunks, five to a bunk, shelved, legs dangling homeward, like those mischievously munching dead on that high girder over Midtown. There was no room for everyone there was room for. Noise, were it not intolerable silence, would have been unbearable noise. It was all sepia, thank God, till you remembered it was sepia you chose. No one to thank but you, no one to blame but you, or choose but you. You tried to close in on one face to make it blurry, but it sharpened like a sniper. Next, you tried to zoom the fuck away, and you got the earth. This is a, a little... Uh, that, was, that used to be called The Furies. It was uh, in a TLS at one point called The Furies. And then um, my friend and editor, Patterson, said, Max, I don't, this, uh, well, I don't understand what this is about. And I said, it's about the internet. So uh, should I call it the net? And he goes, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> I love my editor. I love my friend. Um, this is a... Well, you know, because there's two or three kind of whiny love has gone away poems come out. So I do a, one of those tiny little slivers of love is sort of around first, uh, just to, just to get it in the in the um, traditional order. Um, uh, this is addressed from somebody who's um, aged to somebody who's less aged. It's called the ages. Let's get this straight, and this is actually quite a conventional sonnet, which means it's very old. Let's get this straight. It may be fairly said that, yes, I roamed the earth when you were not, that, yes, I had my small talk with the dead and wept to hear some president got shot trying to enjoy the play. For sure my world had wars in it and peace, and far and wide I sauntered. All the stories you were told have me in them somewhere, off to the side. But all the stuff I know has you somewhere, and I've been trying to do this since half four. So all that to and fro means nothing more to me than time I took and time I make, yawning and fretting in this garden chair, whiling away the ages till you wake. Um, in, this, in this poem I play noughts and crosses with time. 
as you do, um, in uh, Greenwich. It's called Greenwich. At Greenwich we convene, sweet time and I, long having been each other's only subjects, for a game of noughts and crosses just close by the old date line. She fixes her first X while adding, you are done for if you dare, and O's the only figure my mouth makes in the face of that, though in this game it's fair, my point's allowed. But her next X is saying, north, south, east, or west, you exit here. Oh, I'll oblige, I go, when I'm done playing. She puts that to the sword with two deft strokes I realize mean sex, but I'm replying already with my O for love. No jokes. She sniffs at that, pretends to go along, then suddenly, game over. Meet your ex. And I wonder how I got this match so wrong that neither space could win for me. I cry, let's play again. But time is moving on towards some texting kids who'd like a try. Home I stroll from Greenwich, my last O, a seeing how, short of a seeing why. And I just thought, because it's, um, because it's Christmas, um, essentially, but I'm not sure how that makes us feel, I, I'm going to read you quite, something quite depressing about Christmas. Uh, this is like a, a couple of years ago, I decided that I had the nerve to uh, try and spend Christmas Day alone, or at least wake up um, without uh, any sort of family support in London. I thought I'd try that out, because I'd never done that before. And this is, um, I think the term uh, is epic fail. And this is a poem about my epically failing to have a good time on waking up Christmas Day. Um, It's called Christmas Seven Times Seven. But uh, I don't know. It makes me happy, even though it sounds bleak as shit, but it makes me this poem makes me feel okay. Christmas seven times seven. Seven times seven of these till now, one spent alone. I watch first lights come on, on a houseboat by the dim canal. There are two whole families somewhere on the earth I'll call, who wouldn't be surprised. Seven times seven of these. I woke up eye to eye with my little zombie tree, whose blue-green crimson bulbs still light a path through other trees, to the beckoning, unearthly spot, if I thin my eyes and think so. Seven times seven. Today falls on a Saturday, like a tramp who's trying to say, It's Saturday, to the holy beaming family riding by, their tinsel tied and fluttering, their kindness claiming his kind, though seven times, seven times, in fifty times, they leave him wordless by a dustbin. The early light is pale and tinted, Precious, this one time I've nothing much to bring it but our old words for numbers. Seven times seven breaths, and something comes as if the dark won't stand for it. Silence can't endure it either. Whatever breathes, time breathes, and that abiding something other holds me like what holds those who, these seven times seven years, have clustered to their eerie, consolatory short story that's everything a child would hope that a time comes, reappears, that with a firm and measured step, it's all at once beside us, like seven times seven footsteps along the sounding tunnel as I walk this old canal. And as often as I turn to see who's there and they're my steps, I think they're mine till somebody goes past me without turning.
I'm going to read another little section, which kind of leads into the um, leads into the uh, sort of uh, well into the writing class again, because I guess I guess this is a it's a you know it's a book it's a it's books are essentially designed to be read and I, I think I want to read the the fictionalized bits because that's what's a little different and that's what I suppose is a little different about the book. Um, if I just read to you what I think about poetry, that's a lecture, and I've been trying to avoid that my whole life. Even now, I have to teach in college. Um, I'll just drop in here. Any form in poetry, be it meter, rhyme, line break, is a metaphor for creaturely life. It looks to me as if the most durable are those most closely fused to what we are most deeply, organisms that breathe and move and have, who one day horribly learn they can't breathe or move or have forever. I was sitting on the stairs at night in Hertfordshire, asking my dad, but why? Then my daughter was trotting beside me on a green in Massachusetts, asking me, but why? There was a time you turned human. The sound of form in poetry, descended from song, moulded by breath, is the sound of that creature yearning to leave a mark. The meter says, tick-tock. The rhyme says, remember. The whiteness says, alone. The poem forms in space and time. It, at least, can be made to last. It can be what we would have created, how we would create, had we been we, or he, or she, or I, instead of just us. Auden makes the supreme argument for poetic form in general, though he's making it here, for meter in particular. Blessed be all metrical rules that forbid automatic responses, force us to have second thoughts, free from the fetters of self. Far along on the journey you take with poetic form comes a simple revelation. Because poetic form is natural, it resembles freedom. Not absolute freedom, because absolute freedom isn't natural, but all the freedom the creature can gain with his lonely, brave, black signals in the void. This is all the difference is between form and formlessness, between a governing aesthetic and nothing. You breathe the whiteness. You know lines have to end. You seek out words that fit the music. Your brain, freed from its dull day job of serving up the next thing you would think because you're you, delves deep into the vaults and libraries instead, the dusty sights and attics of all you've known or guessed or heard, sorting and rummaging for a word or phrase that not only means right, but sounds right, looks right, fits right. Four ways of meaning. Up it comes. Now the poem is not only you, it's you and the language. It's not only you and today, it's you and time. What's called free verse, writing that has broken clear of either the metrical or musical phrase and uses the word free for what it thinks it is now, just isn't up to that, because nothing is standing in for what makes us creatures in a time and place, whether it's breath, pulse, night and day, footsteps, seasons, nothing is standing in for it. Nothing is standing in for what keeps us here, holds us. Without the sound of breath, or motion of walking, or turning, or stretching, or sitting, or kneeling, or touching, without all the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, without those instruments that have grown out over centuries of speech to form the line, the stanza, the breaks, and the beats, all the evasions and illusions and insights you've got in your little quiver won't stop yourself doing what yourself likes doing. Um, then there's a, a section where I divide the class into two pairs, and um, 
I get them to uh, write uh, um, famous poems using only half the vowels that are available, as if they were two separated civilizations. And I'm just going to read you the four things that my students came up with in my mind um, uh, so that you can tell me what they are. Um, so this is, a, this is a, these first two are poems only using the vowels A and E. Hey, met an aged seafarer. Makes me halt, lets them by. Hey, beardy, mad-eyed elder. Why'd you halt and hassle me? That's from a poem called The Endless Verses Read by the Aged Seafarer that made me late at the party held when Angela Fackenham Trey and Edward Heffenden Dudley were wed. And then the same tribe came up with this. They screw you, ma and pa. Hell yes. Maybe can't help themselves. Beats me. Bequeath you all the mess they made and add the extra garbage free. It went kind of American weirdly, didn't it? But I was quite proud of bequeath. Of course, that's called that be the verse. <laughs> and then the other tribe came up with these two. Turning, turning in this big growing ring. High bird will know no sound of who owns him. Things go to shit. Stuff will not truly hold. Do stuff you just itch to do is cry of my world. That's obviously from slouching to holy towns. And finally, uh, you do not do. You do not do. Not now, brown clog in which I got stuck, my foot stuck for 30 springs, poor, thin, not risking gulp, not risking sniff. That's from Pops. Um, and then I'll just do this a little bit, then I'll read one poem and then we'll talk, we'll do a little Q&A stuff. So uh, this is, um, this is, uh, yeah, uh, after I've taught, the, after I've done that, cl that class with the, uh, my four students. Orlando keeps up the vowel thing for ages in the graduate pub that evening. And Bella finds it easier and easier technically while finding it harder and harder to bother. Wayne, working with his eyeball at the next table, that's eyeball, at the next table, has already explained what that, that what we just had was a Nulipo class. I didn't know that when I wrote it. I don't think our professor knows that, he says. Then he's off to his computer gaming module in Jobs 109 where they say he's trying to develop Poetry Workshop Wipeout to sell to the folk who make The Sims. Perhaps less clear as regards why, Ollie goes when Wayne's gone and they're together. Mm-hmm, says Isabella, using no vowels, because she suddenly can't remember which ones she can use or not use, or what Ollie's talking about. He's grinning at her like he does. Why class takes shape class takes, exactly, Bella dully remembers he said he'd married into the A.E. tribe and had forsaken his old ways or something. Yep, she says after thought, stirring her drink anti-clockwise. E, can't say yep, says Ollie. A.E., that's the past. Nope, says Bella, stirring it clockwise. Can't say that, that has an E at the end. Nope, says Isabella, <laughs> finishing her drink. She better get home, she wants to watch that murder thing she likes. Catch it on iPlayer. Ollie suggests, obviously. You mean E player or A player? She points out, summoning one last drop of wit from the smoking carcass of my class all those hours ago. When Bella is gone and Orlando stumbles into Mimi much later in some crowded night spot and she goes, Oi, Orlando, let's me and you get wrecked. His mind is so distracted with how many vowel mistakes she's made. What gang these days, yay, female classmates? 
that he fails to grasp what she was actually asking of him, and by the time he got it, she'd met some strangers she'd played poker with till morning. I'm just going to read one poem to, uh, to end my little talk. Uh, it's called This Whiteness, um, so it's quite relevant to the things that I've been talking about in the book. And because it's all about whiteness, it's set in a ski resort. Well, that, that, that's, not, that's a non sequitur, but it is set in a ski resort. But in these times of Etonians running everything, I'd like to stress that I don't ski in the poem, okay? Let's stay in the bar. This whiteness. This whiteness followed me at the speed of dawn. A life form in the fingers of an avalanche I was. I was motion caught. I was a spot found out by white, some foe of it, some germ at frantic speed. The day sips its glue vine, high above in the tinkling chalet, stuffed beside the fire and betting on my chances. Who? Down in the valley somewhere, blue now. Gone, I begin again. Such is the motto stamped on me by whiteness I enrage by naming anything, that I only breathe by naming, I attempt to call my credo. See? The whiteness slashed me like a creature. Stock still I wait. They stash in these little stanzas, welcome rations, but the things outside, pouring the air and pitiless with hunger. Gone, I begin again. In the lovely village, every morning's Christmas, and the shops outglisten nature. Nobody's from here. Enormous empty boots line up. The average girl is an angel trying some on. An angel. I ran from a word like that, but I didn't make it. I made this shelter, I, and she doesn't know it. I won't be there when she turns. Typical angel. Time her own. I went. I began again. It's only the quest of the cold thing for the warm thing. Vowels to soften all. She cups hot chocolate outside the blue grill, freezing in the sunshine. And I think of Brodsky saying that for a star to love its neighbour, there's where the big idea was had, such were the distances it travelled. He made that out of words, but he lived there. When one great desert left him to another, twice, she ties her boots... What I mean by angel is one who comes from nowhere to reveal there's nowhere else. But now, it doesn't matter. She looks at where I was, then cools her gaze as the hooded happy groups go slushing by towards the hut that sends them to the mountain. When I glance back from the peaks around, her place is taken by some family and I'm bereft like she was everything. The young go sailing overhead. They're all like them. To not go up, to come this far from home for nothing, earns a stripe from the whiteness. We, it and I, will spend the day alone and dazzled in this blinding bright Valhalla. Writing postcards from it, we're unlikely to send until we're gone, if ever. The sunlight gave like a billionaire and falls like one, in just an hour, with red signs switching on in every language till it's out of sight. The line of empty boots is back, the angel nowhere to be seen but the old station, posted there with all the past forbidden. I saunter back with whiskey to my table and see the whiteness left its card. Evening. The snow is the blue of being not a thing 
that ends, while empty chair after empty chair swing round the mechanism and keep going. Thank you. Has anybody got any questions? Ian McEwan's spoken recently about how he feels that there shouldn't really be undergraduate creative writing courses, there should only be postgraduate ones, because he feels that unless you have the basis of having read a lot, you end up plagiarising writers that you haven't read. Um, where is your? What do you think about creative writing as a, as a taught subject? I mean, uh, how much of it is to do with encouragement and how much to do is to do with creation? Yeah, that's a good question. I think... Um I think uh, I think I've seen it a very wide spectrum of it, right? Um, circumstances um, took me to to Boston, where uh, a long time ago, where I studied at BU with with Walcott, which was a, a perfect fit for me in terms of um, uh, a, a sort of classic mentor young poet relationship. I, I was completely clueless, having come out of university, and very lazy and. I really needed somebody to say, take this seriously. So there was that. So I, in a, in a way, I had the best possible version of it. Having gone out there as sceptical as a lot of people are, thinking of it as an American thing and so on. Um, I then, when I went to America again, sort of a few years later, I wound up at Amherst, where Robert Frost's residency at Amherst College was sort of the origin of the whole thing. Um, Frost was kind of the first poet in residence anywhere, sort of informally. Um, and I, after a few, you know, a few years in the States, I, I saw the other side of it, I think, which is, and this is, not about, this is not about types of poetry or schools, it's about the whole principle of what you teach to um, somebody who knows, you know, who's come into something you've been doing for longer, or who's younger than you, or is just new to it. And, and I, I thought I, I thought it was sort of I, I've seen place, places where the the teacher the poet teacher is trying to get people to write like they do. I've seen that happen, um, and the, also in the states there's this kind of peculiar private economy of university presses, which is you know quite quite well funded and so on. So uh, that. Obviously, that's thrown up some good stuff, but you you do get situations where I, I don't want to. I really don't want to sound like um, you know a capitalist about this, but because I'm, I'm not at all. But it, it, some things are completely untested in the market, completely untested. So you get you you get um, you get people in positions of authority who are barely published at all, who are then passing on their aesthetic to younger people who then do the same quite rapidly are teaching as well um, so I think that's because the, the, the thing is so in, it, 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 it's very cheap to run creative writing departments compared to sciences and so on it's very cheap so, and they're very popular so of course it's spreading all over the UK and so on um, I just think uh, and there's, there are, there's some good ones I think I'm in a good one as well but that, I think one has to be careful. One has to look at what happened in the States and Canada and think, do we want all of that, really? So I think I'd, I'd say, just in sort of autobiographical terms, I had the, the, the biggest slice of luck it was possible to have. And also I, I can see the dangers. I, I would say ultimately what, what 
one should do is show people treasures. You show people what survived, what's outlasted, it's created. And so I don't tend to teach much that's contemporary because I just sort of say, here's the stuff that's proved itself and has survived. How does it work? How does it function? Let's see what gives it that s- superpower, you know? Yeah. Thanks. Uh, you talked rather ruefully about you know, prose selling better than your, your poetry. <laughs> And it, it sort of reminded me of people going around art galleries where you, you get the impression they're reading the captions or listening to the, the things <laughs> they have in their ears rather than actually looking at, at the art itself. I mean, do you think everything is just incredibly mediated and, and how do you get past that to back, back to the real thing itself rather than commentary about it? Yeah, well, again, that's good. I mean, the thing is, it, it, can't, it, it, it comes back to... to it makes me think of something in creative writing classes. One of the first things I try to say to people is that actually what you do is lonely and solitary and that this communal thing we have around a table isn't the case. You know, It may help us to get through the day, but it's not the case. It's, it's a lonely thing. And, and you're de- you, know, you're, you should be doing this in, in the silence. You know? um, unmediated, without me telling you read this by McNeese or whatever you know you should be having your own encounter which is why I always come back to the ancient mariner it's that encounter it's it's uh that's the first thing I do with the classes I have them all all walk down a corridor and I get one of them to say jump out on them and just choose one just choose which one so we don't know and then you just grab that one and say there was a ship (laughs) you know it's that that's the beginning that's the origin of thinking wow I want to do this I think for all of us, anyone who writes, I think that's there's an there's a ancient mariner moment. This is a comment rather than a question, really. Um, I felt that your book spoke about form in a way that I hadn't heard it dealt with elsewhere, and I found that very inspiring. I think partly because the piece that you just read about form and breath and living... Um, but also about form as actually integrate, integral to what one's trying to do. Um, and I wonder whether you had found um, other writers who speak, I mean, people do it, other, other commentators who speak of that. I, I, well, I think um, a number of poets of the 20th century and since, actually, are, are tremendous on poetry, on the craft, uh, Auden is and Frost is and Marianne Moore is um, and well further back Coleridge is I mean I think I think there are some fantastic there's some fantastic writing about the craft um, and you know n- and then nowadays I, I think I think Patterson has a book coming out which I imagine will be very good um, people are thinking about it a lot uh, I suppose the heart of the matter for me is is that it's it, that it's somehow a, a reaction. It's a compensation. Um, I suppose maybe I mean you could say it's reactionary, but in a good way. If that you know you, you can reclaim the word reactionary and say, well, it is a reaction because a large part of the century um, was moving away from form, and of course some great things were achieved. What what I suppose what sort of worried me and has concerned me and still does is 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 that people come out of teenage right into college being sort of told that it's over, the form's over, basically, and that, that, and that they are being given 
intellectual reasons to abdicate any responsibility to learn how to do anything, you know, to master anything technically. Um, I mean, even now, even when people are trying to be nice about my work, they say, it's very good technically, which I think is sort of slightly poisonous. It's slightly saying, yeah, it's all, it's, that's technique. Whatever he does is just technique. But that's bollocks, you know. Um, because, well, I suppose I argue in the book, and I'm not going to argue articulately on, on the microphone on two glasses of wine, but, but form is about time. It's about processing time, and um, different forms are about making time move at different rates in poetry, I think. Um, suddenly Edward Thomas is everywhere. I mean, he's never been yes, away, but he's suddenly, suddenly he's everywhere. But yeah. um, you were there a few years ago. I remember yeah. uh, hearing you on the radio reading your poem about Edward Thomas. Um, so it's just a kind of puzzled question of why Edward Thomas, why now? Yeah, when I, I started teaching in Amherst in the late 90s, I, I, you couldn't find any in America. You couldn't find any. There was nothing published. I mean, it's almost sort of pre, almost pre-Amazon, really. Um, in fact, a friend of mine, a novelist friend of mine, remembers being in a book fair in Seattle and um, seeing um, two guys behind a, a desk that size with a little sign saying Amazon.com. We have this new idea for ways you can sell books. It was Jeff Bezos and some other guy. Yeah, um, yeah so now, yes, it is everywhere because uh, you know, well, there's Ed, Ed, Edna Longley's book and there's lots of people. Andrew Motion's a big fan. and I... I, um, it, it, I, I uh, I read a. I don't usually read reviews because it's never good. I mean, it's it sort of derails you, however good it or bad it is. But um, there was a very intelligent one in the TLS, and it still made me. It, it sounded as if I was sort of praise. Uh, uh, it was a song of praise to the Georgians, which really puzzled me because I think I didn't make clear that it's only Edward Thomas of those people that I think has something. Um, and I think it's. I think it's a sort of it's this thin thread, and it's a, it's a survival of a pentametrical line when everyone else had sort of turned their back on it. It sort of survives in this um, it, it, it completely differently from, say, Tennyson or late Victorian. It's, it just seems to be breathing. That's what I find in Edward Thomas is, is breath on the line. Is breath, and a, um, you can have completely empty lines in Edward Thomas where he can't think of anything, but he's still. He's still breathing, but without thinking of anything. And I think that is a key for a lot of 20th century poets. And I think perhaps a lot of people didn't realize how he was there first, and they're starting to now. Um, I, I, you know, I think a similar thing about McNeese, actually. And he was the other poet I couldn't find anywhere in the States when I started teaching there. But I, I, I think, um, yeah, uh, uh, Edward Thomas isn't a Georgian poet for me. It's a different thing. He's a, a he's a, a lone figure, like Hopkins is a lone figure, you know. Yeah, you sound like a really good teacher. <laughs> um, and I was just right. rather than someone who's just doing it for the money, I just wondered uh, for the usual. For the money? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't be doing. said for the money, I wouldn't be doing this. He said no one's <laughs> buying the books. Um, is there a relationship? What's the relationship? The sense of yourself as a teacher and, and your sense of yourself as a poet and a writer? Yeah. I'm glad you asked that because um, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a young superstitious thing you can have where you th- you don't want to when when you're so kind of bloated about your own sense of yourself as a poet when you're young and you got a bit published you it's like I don't want to I don't want to you know there's, I have this mystery going on and if I 
try to explain it or teach it. It'll yeah. And actually, well, that hasn't happened. Um, teaching for me is mostly about reading more. And, and I, I think I've got the soul of a teacher. My mother was a teacher, like Walcott's mother was a teacher. And I think it's... Uh, it, I, I really like the idea of somebody much younger than me seeing something for the first time and thinking, wow, this is, this is a big deal. This could change things. And you, you, that's a great thing to get when you get it. Um, I don't always like it because, I mean, I like it for the first half of the term. And then I just <laughs> wish I could do my own stuff all the time. Uh, yeah, but uh, of, of anything I could do, rather uh, apart from just sit in a room alone talking about my mind, <laughs> it's the best thing. It's the only other thing I really like to do. So, I mean, you know, apart from the creative things like theatre and so on, yeah. yeah. I think it's a gene you can have to want to do that, to not be phased by the 12 people staring at you, even when occasionally somebody gives you a hard time and walks out and mental things happen. No, I like it. Um, I'm a consumer, not a practitioner. And I just want to say, when I did O-Levels all those years ago, we had a book called The Grass of Parnassus, which was stuffed full of the Georgians. And I shan't forget, you know, the dirty British coaster with its salt cake smokestacks and things like that. And what the quality was, I don't know. But the pleasure was terrific. And, I, and I'm grateful for it. Memorability will find it all out, you know. I, 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 um, it's probably easy for some people to think that I'm a nostalgist uh, and a reactionary and so on, but it's, it's, it's really not the case. I just don't think the case has been made for anything that's contemporary. You just have to wait. And I think that about my own stuff. You just have to wait. So things prove themselves over time, and I think it's to do with how, how well the time is handled on the line, which is why I think form will last for longer than unpassioned verse because it seems to have been the case so far but on the 20th century one has to wait and see I think but memorability is um, I think that's the the thing that the second half of the 20th century I think more in the States but particularly jettisoned just the concept that memorability was a positive thing yeah because when you throw that out you throw out all sorts of uh, passion that um, was good enough for the other 12 centuries. You know what I mean? When I I dislike poetry, I usually, the first thing that comes to mind is that I think it's ungenerous. That's the word that comes to me. And that applies to some very famous people. (laughs) Um, uh, Back to teaching for a a second. I was wondering about a couple poems that you really love teaching your students or from the other side, a couple poems that your students seem to really love discussing. I'm also a teacher. So. Well, you'd like me to say which ones? Yeah. Um, well, the, the, they're ones that I've put in the book, which kind of means I'll probably never be able to teach them again. <laughs> um, but I, I think probably I've got an awful lot out of Old Man by Edward Thomas, which is kind of talked about quite a lot in the book. Um, there's a little section on it. Uh, there's that one. That has all the things I was saying about Thomas. It seemed to me they're evident. Uh, 
There's I lo- uh, Snow by Louis McNeese, I think, throws up an awful lot of interesting things. Um, and f- I like teaching Auden's Fall of Rome for um, it's the stanzaic thing, wh- what you can do with stanzas and what you can do with the sort of cinematic eye. I, d- I do that a lot. Um, and, and I'll tell you what Larkin is very good for uh, uh, leaving words out. I mean, you know, the, the, the guess what word is there? Larkin's great for that because he's so accurate and surprising and his verbs are so amazing. Um, and and th- that, that's a simple way of teaching. It's an old way of teaching. Auden used to teach like that, and that's, that's kind of good enough for me. Uh, the, the, they, they tend to be formalists I teach from, usually, just because it's easier to teach from that. Because a lot of the great sort of free verse writers are quite singular people, you know, um, and it's a little difficult to say. It's a, I find it a little difficult to teach that. I, I find it hard to teach Ted Hughes. Um, I find it hard to teach um, Williams. You know, I, I, I sort of think you can find your way there, but they're, they're quite singular people. Whereas with formalists, I think it's easier to teach because I think that's what's missing. You know, there's, there's plenty of spirit and content in terms of young people. There's all sorts of things they can talk about. It's all sorts of things they want to say. But I'm sort of saying, let's learn a bit about how to channel it, how to hold it, how to make it a, a beautiful vessel of which you can give it to us. You know, that's not to say it's all got to be sonnets or villanelles. I mean, that stuff, no. Just learn a bit about the, the line, you know, just learn a bit about it. Um, so th- those kind of things. I did actually, D.H. Uh, Lawrence and Ted Hughes are good for line break, yeah. Because you can give it to them as prose. You jumble it all up as prose and you say, where are the line breaks? That's a good game. That's a good one. I'm interested to hear something of your views of contemporary American poetry. And if there... (laughs) No? (laughs) And if there are any poets that you particularly rate or find interesting, either from the point of view of form or content or both. Um, I, I think uh, there's a lot of people I like enough, but not enough to say. Uh, I think Schnackenberg is amazing, whom a lot of people haven't heard of, and I think she's one of the best things happening. Um, I don't think I want to go any further. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's not that there aren't... When I was at the New Republic, I, I found an awful lot of s- individual poems that were terrific. And then I'd ask that poet for more, to send more in, and then none of the others sort of could do it. And, and, and uh, I don't know, I, th- I thought maybe it was just uh, some really good poems get written. Um, but in terms of a sort of body of work, they're not... There they're, are they're lots of people I like enough. And Mary Jo Salter I like a lot. Rosanna Warren, you know. But Schnackenberg, I think, has something else. And then there's a Russian guy called Kaminsky. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a few. I think, in a way, part part of what a the apart from this was a commission, and I was taken out to a really nice lunch when it was commissioned. So I was very uh, very vulnerable. Um, a, apart from that, I mean, that there's I don't like an awful lot of what I read, um, which which m- m- may, I suppose, set me on a path to investigating why not. 
What don't I like about it? Why doesn't this nourish me? I'm not saying everything. There's some beautiful things around. But I mean, why doesn't this nourish me like what was before? You know? Maybe I am irrecoverably old. Well, everybody finished yet? Yeah. Well, did you want to end with a poem, or did you want to? Uh, um, have you run out? <laughs> oh well, actually, there is something that's quite short. It's just that that, that, that seems to be an appropriate way to finish. Um, th this is um, uh, this is the end of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. At the very end of the book, we go back to the wedding guest, who, as you know, was on his way to the wedding. But we've had the wedding; it's finished. And he's had to hear the whole of the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner instead. So I wrote his little poem at the end. Um, thanks for coming so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, so this is, starts with the end of the Mariner. This is the end of the book. Farewell, farewell. But this I tell to thee, thou wedding guest. He prayeth well, who loveth well both man and bird and beast. He prayeth best, who loveth best all things both great and small. For the dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all. Right. Right then, Mariner. Cheers for the righteous rhyme. I better be off to the wedding feast. I. Shit, is that the time? <laughs> Jesus, it's dark. The stars are out. Where have I been all day? Where did I go to? What have I missed? The guests are going away. In twos and fours and twos and threes, they spill into cars and drive. And some go stumbling up the hill. I can't just like arrive i'll just pretend i went there too it's dark they won't know me it's dark but at the crest of the hill it's unbelievably it's getting light i missed the night the sky is rosy pink people are dancing any old how one makes me drink her drink and off she goes and no one knows i spent the time alone with a tale a total stranger told of a long old journey home off she goes, and no one knows I spent the time alone with a tale a total stranger told of a long old journey home. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>